Hey, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians while you're turning to your Bible, in your Bible to the book of Ephesians, whether that's a paper Bible or on your phone, you can go to a Bible app or you can go to literally Bible.com. Find the book of Ephesians chapter one. We're still in there. We're going to pick up our series at verse seven today. And while you are turning there, I would just like to say, uh, just by way of some family business, that we were, we're, we've been praying at 6 a.m. here in, in, on, on campus in this room at, at, on Friday mornings once a week. We've been doing that actually for three weeks now. We felt like the Lord had told us, just begin to get together and pray. And there's about half a dozen of us that'll show up, and uh, it'll kind of come. Some folks will kind of come and go, and uh, so we'll be here for about an hour, hour and a half. Uh, and, and we're just praying. We're praying for the church. We're praying for you. You've been prayed for. Uh, we're praying for you every day, but we're gathering and praying. We're praying for the community as well. Uh, we know that there's a lot of things going on globally. We're covering those things in prayer. And one of the things that we felt like the Lord was saying to say to you when we got together to pray this last Friday uh, was specifically just to invite and encourage you, uh, you know, as of actually tomorrow, I think is the last, or Monday, or tomorrow is Monday, on, as of Tuesday, uh, will be the last kind of set of kids that are going to go back to school. Uh, so we're all, we're, so yeah, <laughs> praise the Lord. Uh, so we're excited that our kids are all going back to school, but, you know, there is a lot of just kind of unknown, and sometimes it feels a little roller coaster. If you've already sent your kids back to school, uh, you might have sent them back and then had them do homeschool for a couple days and tried to send them back again. We see all of that. We were praying for that, and we just want to invite you as members of the church to pray for our students and pray for parents of students as well. We want to pray for the administrations in our, uh, administration in our schools. We want to pray for teachers, uh, office staff. We want to pray for the janitors. Uh, schools, are, schools are an important place, and we want to make sure that they are not only safe but uh, physically, but also safe spiritually. And so uh, can we just pause right now and, and, and say a word of prayer, God? We, we know that as all, there, many of our students have already gone back, and it, re, it really as of this week, all of our students will be back in the school year. And whether those are homeschooled students, on-campus students, Zoom students, or any other kind of uh, student, uh, maybe in non-traditional education modes even, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity <clears throat> this year to see you do some work on our school campuses and in the schools in our community. Lord, we pray a blessing and a covering over our administrators and teachers uh, down all the way uh, to the, the youngest person on every campus and the oldest person on every campus. Lord, would you protect them physically and spiritually? Lord, would you give wisdom and insight for the leaders of our schools in this community for how they should respond to uh, the ongoing COVID-19 conversation and all of the other issues and questions that are out there in our community? When it comes to students and how they are educated. Lord, we ask that your will would be done and your name would be glorified and that the campuses in this community would be safe physically and spiritually. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I, just as, as we're kind of wrapping up that thought, I would just encourage you, if you're a parent dropping off or picking up students as you're getting going this week or this school year, uh, make sure as you drop off your students or as you pick them up, 
pray and pray out loud for the campuses. Pray for your your uh, pray for the bullies on the campus that they meet Jesus. Pray for the kids that are scared on campus that they would find peace. Pray for the teachers. You could do that twice a day as you drop off and pick up your kids. Imagine what that what could happen on a campus as God's people pray. And then maybe you just want to take a walk. Maybe you're near a campus. There's one right over here. Maybe you just want to take a walk around a campus. Uh, maybe you do it enough times that the administration comes out and asks you what in the world you're doing, and you can tell them, hey, I'm just praying, uh, just believing that you guys would be blessed. Is there any way that we could serve you uh, and bless you as a, as a community out, or a part of the community out here in the Allen Valley? Does that sound good? Let's just believe that God is going to do good works here, but not just believe it. Let's pray into it. Amen? Amen? All right, okay. Let's get into Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Today we are continuing our journey through the book of Ephesians. And now you're going to notice something a little bit different about today's message. Sometimes, uh, and we've already done it in this journey through this entire book of Ephesians, sometimes we're going to take two verses and we're just going to do a super deep dive into them. And sometimes, like today, we're going to take verses 7 through 14 and just take a whole chunk of the book and see if we can cover a bunch of it. And the reason we're going to do it like that today is because sometimes you, you, Paul, Paul has a way of writing that he says stuff in one sentence that could take you a whole sermon series to unpack. And sometimes he says a ton of stuff in a, in a few paragraphs that you really realize is one statement or it has one kind of unifying theme. And that's what you're going to see here today in our key text. So why don't you allow me to read that for you, and then we're going to move through each of the, I think there are three distinct sections here as we continue this journey through the book of Ephesians, which you'll remember as Paul is setting up this book, he's talking to us about our identity in Christ. And you'll find that this is the perfect text for us to be reading on the day where we just took communion together. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 7, in him, and him in this context is Jesus Christ. So he's, remember Paul is writing to people who are Christians, faithful saints in the city of Ephesus. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. That's pretty good. He goes on. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. God, would you help me to say in the time that I've got today all that you put on my heart, and if there's anything that I wrote in these notes that you don't want me to tell these people, Lord, just help me to not notice it as I go through today. Help me to say what you would want us to learn uh, today. God, through your word, would you change our hearts and change our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. So Paul is describing what I would call the benefits package of being in Christ in this text. So, you know, when you got your job, hopefully there was a benefits package. Maybe it came with some insurance. Uh, Maybe it came with a few uh, days off during the year, maybe hopefully more than a few days off during the year. And Paul is arguing for us here that if we are in Christ, In Christ is a term which means you have placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior. He's the Lord of your life. In other words, you believe the gospel and you're trying to live out the gospel, the good news in your own life. He's saying there's a benefits package for us. And you can see it in these three in him statements. In verse 7, he says, in him we have redemption. In verse 11, he says, in him we have also received an inheritance. And in verse 13, he says, in him you also were sealed. And what we were sealed with is the Holy Spirit. Now again, remember, Paul is not writing to try to convince you to become a Christian in the book of Ephesus. He's writing to those faithful saints. He's writing to people who live in a world where we've made a commitment to Jesus, and despite the fact that the world is trying to draw our attention away from Jesus, we're trying to stay faithful, right? So he's reminding us about the benefits of staying faithful to Jesus, So if you've made that commitment, if you are a faithful saint in Christ, then these benefits are for you. And if you haven't made that commitment yet or you've been struggling to be faithful, well, all it takes is for you to make a decision now and begin to live faithful, and you get all of the benefits as well. So let's start by looking at verse 7 through 10 as Paul unpacks this first benefit, the benefit of redemption. Now, when Paul uses the word redemption here, he uses a Greek word, which means to release, which, uh, or a release that is affected by payment of ransom. Redemption is a synonym of this word, and then deliverance is another word that you might use when Paul uses the word redemption here. So, the, the, the imagery that Paul wants us to have is, imagine a person has been kidnapped, and they call you and say, hey, if you want to see your loved one, you're going to pay the ransom price. And the ransom price is, you know, give me your iPad or a million dollars or however much they think the person is worth, right? And then, and then you pay the price, and paying the price gets their freedom. That's called redemption. You have redeemed them. Does that make sense? They were bound, and then you paid the price, and then they were set free. And Jesus says, I paid the price... For the people who were bound so that they could be set free. Paul's making a direct reference here to Jesus' work on the cross. He writes about it like this in in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us were bound by sin. It says, then though, that they are justified freely by Jesus' grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat. Now, I'm not going to get into the theology or the unpacking what the mercy seat is. That's another sermon. In fact, I actually preached about that in December. You could go back and look at the the sermon called The Reason Reason Why We Call Jesus Our Savior as as Foursquare People. But again, it says God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood, by the blood of Jesus. Marcus was talking to us about that today. Through faith, so the blood of Jesus that you put your faith in, then you were able to have the mercy seat applied to you in order to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. So if you placed your faith in the blood of Jesus, then God exercised restraint 
that even though you were bound in sin, that mercy was applied to you instead of punishment. So he paid the price, and what was the payment? His blood, his life. And as he paid that, he paid the price to ransom you or to redeem you. And Jesus, by the way, says this about himself as well. In Mark 10, 45, he says, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The many is whoever would put their faith in the ransom, in Jesus. So Jesus gives his life to pay the ransom price so that he could redeem us from death. And then Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, to tell us about the source and two results of this redemption. So he kind of backtracks a little bit. He tells us there's a source of this redemption. Where does it come from? And then this should have two, at least two results, or it should bear two kinds of fruit in your life. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 again. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That's the source. The riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. The source of our redemption is God's unlimited grace and wisdom and understanding. Now, I just want to be clear here because when you, when you read this, and depending on what translation you're reading in verse 7, sometimes it, it's actually translated incorrectly. And grammar is hard, and the English language is weird, and when you're translating from a, an ancient language to modern English, it can sometimes we miss the mark. I, I just want to tell you that as we study this, what we actually find is that it's really important that we understand who possesses the, the ideas in this sentence grammatically. So as you study the original language, what you actually find is that it's God's riches, it's God's wisdom, and it's God's understanding. That's important because sometimes we translate this into English where we say that God poured out from his riches, he poured out forgiveness, wisdom, and understanding. And that's not actually what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that God poured out forgiveness, wisdom, and understanding. He's saying in his richness, with all wisdom and understanding everything, he poured out forgiveness for you. Does that make sense? So God is all wise. He knows everything, meaning he knows everything that, he's, that you've ever done. He knows everything you will ever do. And even knowing all of that, knew exactly the best way because he is the owner of all wisdom, knew exactly how to go about pouring out forgiveness for your life. And where did that forgiveness come from? His unending richness of grace and mercy. So the source is God's unlimited grace, wisdom, and understanding. But from that wealth, God redeems us and then produces these two specific kinds of fruit. And I would say that you can see here as you read verses 9 through 10, 9 through 10 what kind of fruit should be produced. It says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ, as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. So I would say here, that one of the fruit is that we would know the mystery of God's will. That you would be redeemed, number one. And number two, that all things would be reconciled back into relationship with God. 
The mystery of God's will is your redemption. And it was a mystery before you knew it, and now that you're redeemed, you get to know the mystery of God's will. What was his will? That you would be redeemed. But you know the full mystery of his will, that it's not just you that was supposed to be redeemed, it was that all things would be reconciled back to God in Christ. And I would argue for you that that should have a direct impact on the way we live in the world completely. In fact, we'll talk about that again in a few minutes. But so far, we've already seen that the first benefit that Paul wants us to understand is that in Christ, we have been redeemed. Right? You were not redeemed. You were bound by death and sin. But God's intention for you was to know the mystery of God's will, to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God, to be in right relationship with him, to be a part of the kingdom of God on earth and in heaven, and, and to give him praise, which we'll talk about, in fact, in just a moment. Because now we'll see the second benefit is seen in verses 11 through 12. It says, in him we have also received an inheritance. Because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, which we won't dig too deep into that idea this week because we talked about the idea of predestination and how do we look at that as charismatic Pentecostal people. You can listen to that sermon from last Sunday. But he goes on, he says, uh, so that, verse 12, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Simply put, through Christ, we are adopted into God's family, and as his children, we get a rich inheritance. Just like how my kids are going to get an inheritance from me, you get an inheritance from God, the benefits of being his children. But what I really want you to notice here today is God's intended result of our inheritance. See, uh, we have an inheritance, listen again, it says, so that meaning there should be a result of this, or it should, there should be a way that we live because of this inheritance. And what's the result? So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. So the inheritance that you received, again, we talked about this a little bit last week, so we won't dig too deep into this, but the, pray, the inheritance that you received should have a result that gets back to God in the form of praise. Right? So, Again, I, I would propose to you that we do this in, in two ways. Personally, directly giving your praise to Jesus. We talked about that last Sunday. But then also, we, we talked about this a little bit last Sunday. We'll talk about this more today. That we give praise to God's glory by participating in the mystery of his will. Because what's the mystery of God's will? That all things, or to bring everything to Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Now think about that statement for a second. To participate in the mystery of God's will would look like you participating with bringing everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. How might that impact the way you engage with the world? I would argue with you that it should impact everything about the way you engage with everything. And when I say everything, I actually do mean everything. Every encounter that we have with other people should 
be geared toward this end. So ask yourself, how do your relationships with other human beings bring everything together in Christ? Do the way that you, uh, do, do, do the way that you talk to people, does the way that you build relationships, the way that you respond to people, the way that you engage with people on social media, or the way that you engage with your boss or your coworkers, does that bring people closer to Christ, or does it encourage them to not want to have anything to do with the Jesus whose name you throw around? By the way, Paul talks about part of our inheritance in 1 Corinthians, specifically in chapter 5, when he says that we are ambassadors for Christ. And then he says that as part of our inheritance, we've been given what he calls the ministry of reconciliation. He says, because you were reconciled to Christ, now you've been hired and given the ministry of reconciling other people to Christ. And he specifically says you're an ambassador, which means you have the authority of the king that you've been sent to represent. And when you walk around in the world, all of your relationships should be like an ambassador with the end goal in mind that you are trying to get people to be reconciled with Christ because you understand the mystery of God's will, that you desperately needed to be redeemed, and now that you have been redeemed, you want others to be redeemed as well. And this should must impact every single one of your relationships. Otherwise, I would just dare say that you don't fully understand it yet. This should impact your married life or your singleness. This should impact your parenting or your grandparenting. This should impact the way you go to work or the way that you live if you can't work right now. This should impact the way you come to church or the way you watch church online. It should be the way that you vote and the way that you spend your money. It should be the way that you drive on the freeway. This actually should impact the way that you live. I cut somebody off the other day. I was, I was on the five and I... I just did it. I did it, all right? I confess before you, I did the thing. And I, I just want to admit to you, it felt good. Because their driving was wrong, and I was right. Don't clap at this. I'm trying to repent. As soon as I cut this person off and started thinking about, like, I showed you how much of a better driver I am, my Nissan Altima, <laughs> with, a, with a sticker in the rear window that says, the cross is life. What if, as, as silly as that illustration is, what if Jesus actually does want every single part of the way you engage with other human beings to reflect him and not yourself? What if? He absolutely wants that to be the reality of our lives. But I would argue with you that this actually goes beyond our relationships with other people. To an area that as evangelical, Pentecostal people, 
living in the Western American Christian society that, that we often overlook or that we dismiss uh, and mock. I would argue that this should also actually affect the way we engage with God's creation that doesn't look like human beings as much as it affects the way we engage with other human beings. I would say that I think that we could find in Scripture that we bring praise to the glory of Christ as we interact with his creation in ways that honor the creator. Right? The beginning of this story started in a perfect world. And sin corrupted us and the world that we live in. And I I recognize that if you read the book of Genesis, you actually see that part of the way that the world is a corrupted place is part of what we are called to steward, but it is also part of the result of the fall of man. The corruption of our world, the way that we are polluting and destroying the world is a dishonor to God's original intention. And so if it is true that it should impact every area of our lives, then it should also impact the way that we steward the creation that we enjoy. A friend of mine named A.J. Swoboda is a professor uh, at Bushnell University in Fuller Seminary. He teaches Bible and theology and leadership, and he's one of the smartest people that I know. And he actually refers to himself as a Pentecostal eco-environmentalist. He lives in Portland, so you're probably just like, yeah, of course. (laughs) But in 2014, AJ actually compiled a book of essays called The Blood Cries Out. It's it's written by a a bunch of Pentecostal, charismatic-leaning Christians and intellectuals who wanted to write about the responsibility that the church should have to the planet. And in there, in the introduction specifically, AJ Swoboda writes, the spirit of Pentecost, meaning the that people who live in the Pentecost, meaning people who are spirit-filled and engaging with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Pentecost seeks to both to bear reconciliatory healing, to reconcile and bring health, between human beings and also between humans and the earth. He references the way that God wants to bring reconciliation between Cain and Abel when the first murder happened, but he also wants to bring reconciliation between humans and earth, and we would be the murderers in that context. In one essay, uh, a, a man named Paul Eddy unpacks Ezekiel chapter 47, which if you've been around Life Church for a while, you know that that's actually a foundational text of scripture for our church. Ezekiel 47 is the, the image of the temple of God where the river runs from the temple and it gets wider and deeper and, and impacts the world everywhere that it flows. And we've actually talked about that passage in a very prophetic sense in the way that God would want us to go out and change the culture of the world. And Paul Eddy actually argues that Ezekiel 47 should also be taken literally. That as the river of life goes out and there's, there's all sorts of fish in the river and there's all kinds of life around the river and trees of all kinds grow up around the river and bear fruit in every season, that the end goal of the way we should steward the world is that it should be a healthy place. And so at the risk of sounding like we've gone so far over to whatever side of whatever argument, uh, what if God's actually right in the center of this conversation conversation saying, I really would be blessed and honored and praised if you would take care of the thing I gave you. And what if the thing he gave you was the people around you and also 
the planet that we're on? What if the church was actually supposed to lead the way in showing the world what it looks like to care for this place? The sad part is that the church too often goes, oh, that's that liberal agenda again, telling everybody to recycle. When, when did the world get to decide that we should care for the place that God gave us and they do better at that than us? I don't want to take too much time here because we don't talk about this a ton, but maybe we can just begin to introduce an idea that as a church we should care for the world that we live in. And maybe with the same sort of passion that we care for the place where we live, we should care for the people who live here with us. So God's creation is both the world and the people around us. And because we are in Christ, we have been redeemed, and we have received an inheritance which looks like relationships and a planet. And we should care for all of those things. And then Paul says that the third benefit that we have You can see it in verses 13 through 14. It says, in him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit is a reference to the the multiple times that Jesus says, when I go to sit at the right hand of the Father, I will send the Holy Spirit. He'll be a helper to you. The the word is parakletos. It it means that he'll, he'll be a person who stands firm next to you and helps you hold on to your faith. The the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would be the one who would illuminate Scripture to you, and he would do signs and wonders in and through your life, which uh, another term for that would be miracles. And the reason we call them signs and wonders is because they point like a sign to the one who does the work. But it says, in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on our, of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now, just for clarity's sake, uh, again, there's actually in that same series back in December where we talked about the reason that we call Jesus the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. We did a whole sermon on the person of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit is the the third person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That does not mean that he comes in third place or he's the, the third coolest version of God, but that he's fully God, that he is completely God, just like Jesus and the Father are fully God. They just have a, a, a third, he, he, he kind of comes third in the history of the world, and he's the one we're engaging with directly, most directly right now, even though we talk about Jesus the most. When you talk about feeling and, and engaging with the presence of God in your life, you're actually talking about the spirit of the living God, who is the Holy Spirit. And just for clarity, I get on my students about this when I teach a spiritual gifts class down at Life Pacific University. Um, The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a thing. He's not the wind of God or an idea about God. He's a person with emotions and character. He is a very real being, right? So if you write a paper about this one time and you say the Holy Spirit, it is, no, I'll just fail you right there. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a he, okay? So this is God himself we are talking about when Paul says that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And interestingly enough, just for theological understanding, we are not sealed by Jesus. We're redeemed by Jesus. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. All right? And that is distinct and important. Let's not dishonor the work of the Holy Spirit by giving Jesus credit for stuff he doesn't want credit for. So let's honor the Holy Spirit. 
and invite him to do his work. The Holy Spirit, again, helps the believer understand God's word, gives us natural and supernatural gifts, and then performs miracles in and through the believer. And here Paul says that part of the Holy Spirit's role is to seal the believer. When did you get sealed? When you put your faith in the good news about Jesus. When you said, I believe that what Scripture says about Jesus is true, and you, as Paul says in Romans, when you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, then the Holy Spirit seals. Because Paul actually says, when you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. You are redeemed. And who seals that? The Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about what that means when you are sealed. The word that Paul actually uses here is a Greek word that paints the same picture as if a master would have a servant and they would brand them. Now I have opinions about the ethics of branding and servitude and having a master. Let's deal with that on another sermon. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul might actually address servants and masters. We'll talk about that maybe next year. Should we be clear? Slavery is bad. Okay, can we move on? All right, let's just deal with the illustration. When a master would brand a servant, they were marking them so that everyone who would look at them would know who, to whom they belong. And then the way that they behave would be under submission to the brand, to the mark or the marker or the sealer. Interestingly enough, when God seals you and you become like what Paul calls himself a slave to Christ, your slavery is unto freedom. That God actually completely flips the, the script on slavery and says, when you get marked with my brand, you are more free than anyone ever. But you are marked. And it should change the way that you live. You should be submitted. Which means that if your salvation is, let me believe in my heart, confess in my mouth, put my hand up in a church and say a prayer that a pastor led me in, but I'm never going to live any differently than the way that I lived before I raised my hand and prayed a prayer in church on a Sunday, then you have not been marked. You just said some words. And I'm sorry for all the times that a pastor told you that if you just pray the right prayer, you'll get into heaven. That is not the gospel. The gospel is, Jesus died for you so that you don't have to die. Jesus rose from the dead so that in him you could also live. And then when you put your faith in him, you are redeemed and that the Holy Spirit seals you. Which means that Jesus is your Lord and you must live publicly different. Everyone must be able to look at you and go, there is something different about you. What would it look like if you were to live as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, a person living in the way of Christ in the world that was simultaneously loving and welcoming, but also so radically different that you stopped trying to fit in because your goal is actually to stand out, to be marked, to be noticeable, in the way that you love Jesus and the way that you love his creation and the way that you celebrate the rich forgiveness and wisdom and understanding that was poured out all over you in, in redemption? What if the way you lived was actually not like your neighbor's? 
Not in some elitist sense. Let's get rid of that in the church. We are not better than anybody. We're redeemed because of the one who's better than everybody. Right? So Paul uses this word to signify a legal contract. Do you understand what that means? That every time that you run around trying to behave like the world and not like the one who marked you, you are in breach of a legal contract with the creator of the universe? Whew! If that doesn't make you a little bit nervous the next time you cut someone off on the freeway. Yeah, that stuff matters. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you? You don't belong to you anymore. As Christians, we become the temple of God. We are structurally different than we were before salvation. And the Spirit of God comes to dwell among the church. And then there's also this separate filling with the Holy Spirit, which should mark our lives. You can read about that in the book of Acts. It's an awesome, awesome story. But then listen also to Ephesians chapter 5. He says, don't be drunk with wine. This is Paul still writing. We'll teach about this later on. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. I mean, that's just good advice. But, but the point I'm trying to make actually is here. He says, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the fruit of that looks like this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts, which sounds like what Paul was saying at the end of Ephesians 1.14, that all of this is to the praise of his glory. So when you believed in the good news about Jesus, you were sealed, marked by the Holy Spirit, and you should be living visibly different than you were before. The sealing in the Holy, and the marking of the Holy Spirit makes us different. And then Paul says something amazing in, in the end of all of this in verse 14 about this sealing. And I, I want to make sure that we don't just gloss over this. He says, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession of the praise to the praise of his glory. Did you notice that? I was sitting right here um, at the end of our 6 a.m. prayer on Friday morning, and I was just reading through the text that I'm preaching right now, and I, I had never noticed before. I was sitting right here in the moment when all of a sudden it felt like the Holy Spirit just highlighted down payment. What does that mean, that God would send the Holy Spirit not just to seal us, to mark us as different, but, but to be the down payment? Listen to the context. He's the down payment of your inheritance. You know what a down payment is? Let me give you a little bit now to promise that the full amount is coming later. I pay a down payment as a legal contract that something else is coming later. So you are marked, sealed as a part of a legal contract, and that same Holy Spirit is God saying, now I am binding myself legally to, I promise you, that you will get the full amount. The full amount of what? The inheritance until the redemption of the possession. There's a, there's a now redemption. I'm, I'm redeemed. I'm free from sin and judgment. And, and I'm in relationship with God. But there's also a, a not yet redemption when God's going to come back and finish the story. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And we get to be new creation in fullness of relationship intimately with Him to know as we are fully known 
There's a, there's a now and a not yet about this kingdom. There's a now and a not yet about the redemption and the inheritance. And, and all of this is to the praise of His glory. And the Holy Spirit right now is the down payment, the promise. The, the, it's almost like the, the teaser, the trailer of, of the good fullness that you get, to, the, you get to live into one day. When the new Spider-Man trailer came out, we all have been waiting for it. Marvel made us go on, an, uh, on, a, on a fast. We didn't want to fast, but we had to wait for the trailer to come out. We were all mad about it. And when the trailer came out, my 14-year-old daughter, Hannah, was sitting next to me, and she shoved her phone in my face. She said, Dad, we have to watch this right now. And so we watched it, and we were stunned, and we were amazed, and she was so pumped about a trailer for a movie about a kid that gets bitten by a spider that she literally ran a lap like she was in an old school apostolic church around our house hooting and hollering because Peter Parker is coming back to the silver screen over a trailer about a movie because Marvel gave her the down payment on the promise that one day this movie will come out. And if you know anything about living in 2020 and 2021, you know the release date of that movie could be very much like the actual eventual return of Jesus. Only the Father knows when these things will actually come out. But thank God we have the trailer. <laughs> this, is, this is what Paul is trying to get us to understand. What would it look like if you were this excited? What would it look like if you believed that the gift of the Holy Spirit wasn't just some fancy poetic words that God says, oh, I'm with you all the time, don't worry about it, I'll come back, just hang in there. What, what if he said, I, I want to give you a teaser? And what if that teaser was better than anything you could get anywhere else? What if, what if that teaser was the fullness of God's presence with you at all times? Where, where nobody gets excluded who would lean in. Where nobody gets just half because you're not good enough. That God would give you all of his fullness if you would just receive. We live in a kingdom that is now. We get to see signs and wonders, miracles. People are raised from the dead in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I mean that spiritually and I mean that literally. People are healed of sickness in the name of Jesus under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I mean that emotionally and I mean that physically. Relationally, there is healing. There's restoration for us. There are all kinds of miracles happening all the time. And can you imagine how good it is to live in the presence of God in partnership with the Holy Spirit, being able to have God do miracles in your life and through your life? And God says, that's not even, that's just a trailer compared to actual eternal life. That's just the down payment. But it's also a promise 
Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, which is probably Lancaster. (laughs) The power of the Holy Spirit is a sign of your being sealed by God. And the fruit of your being sealed by God should be that you tell other people about Jesus and that when you do it, you should expect miraculous results. The greatest miracle you will ever see in your entire life is somebody giving their life to Jesus. And then a bunch of other miracles should be able to come along with that. And what would it be like if the church actually went out there and told people about Jesus, filled with the power of the down payment, and saw miracles on the daily? This is what the church started on. Sharing the good news of Jesus in power, and they were added to the church daily, those who were being saved. The greatest miracle in all human history. And all of this points to a future kingdom of heaven where John saw in a vision, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's a prophetic promise in Revelation chapter 20. One verse 4. This is the not yet portion of the kingdom. Today there is grief and there is death and there is coronavirus and there is racism and there is hatred and there is divorce and there's financial corruption and there's but God gave you the down payment gave us the power gave the keys to the kingdom to the church and said Go and share the story. Go and grow. Go and grow. Go and give life. To what end? To the praise of his glory. I heard a, I heard a pastor say, uh, Pete Scazzaro say recently, he said, you know, one of the greatest assaults against the American church, his popularity of a preacher. And I was a preacher listening to that, and I was like, oh, that cuts deep. <laughs> and I'm reckon, recognizing in my mid-late 30s that one of the greatest ambitions of my life when I was in my 20s was to be known by you. And how much it must pain the heart of God that so many of our churches, including this one on my bad days, are led by men and women who, with probably all good intention, think that the best service that I can do for God is to make sure everybody knows me, and if I say the right words, then maybe they'll like him. And that's not the end goal of this kingdom. The end goal of this kingdom is to the praise of his glory. And if I die and there isn't even a name on my tombstone and nobody ever tells my story, but that if somehow, because we shared his story together, they would know him, then our lives would have been worth it. God, would you do that in this church? 
God, when we stand up and we talk in a microphone, when we, when we lead moments like this, let this not be what the church is about. Let it be a moment within the church that is about the praise of your glory. God, we want to come here to hear something that we take there. We want to come here to be filled so that we can go out there and be emptied. God, we don't want to be popular. We want to make you famous. We want to make you known. And we want to bring praise to your glory. As you sit in this moment, I just want to invite you to reflect on your own life. Does your life reflect the praise of God's glory? Or has it been a reflection of the pursuit of your comfort? Are you redeemed? Have you been living as a recipient of God's forgiveness? Are you enjoying your inheritance? Or have you bought into the lie that this world actually is meant to be just a series of days that feel like suffering until one day God comes and rescues you from it? Have you been living into the fullness of the mystery, which is that you get to have a good, full life, fully redeemed, and helping God to redeem others? Are you filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you marked? Are you different because of what God has done? If the answer to those questions are no, it begins with belief. What do you believe about who Jesus says that he is? And what will you do about what you say you believe? Jesus, I pray for my own life and I pray for the, life of my, the lives of my friends, people who are in this room joining us online or even watching this later. I pray that you would help us. And for those of us who need to be redeemed, help us. Redeem us. For those of us who need to receive your forgiveness, God, give us the peace that comes from being forgiven. For those of us who don't understand the inheritance, illuminate by your Holy Spirit your word so we can understand the goodness of the richness that you have poured out on us and also the goodness of the responsibility you have handed to us. Help us to live as inheriting people, filled with your Holy Spirit. And Life Church, I just pray this blessing over you as we come to an end of this moment. May you, in the name of Jesus, have peace. Peace with God and peace in your own heart, knowing that you are redeemed and forgiven. May you enjoy the fullness of your rich inheritance. May you be sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit. May you experience the joy of your salvation in every circumstance. May you live in this world in a way that brings praise to the glory of God. In the name of Jesus. Amen.